This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. We are outside, we're active, we're burning more calories, and believe it or not, gardening has been proven through research that it helps us alleviate stress. And goodness knows we are all dealing with a lot of extra stress these days. So I think that gardening is one of the best ways that we could try to, you know, deal with that stress. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about maintaining blood glucose levels. We'll find out how to avoid gardening injuries. We'll discuss making micro changes for your health. And lastly, we'll talk about the ins and outs of organic foods. But first, a little bit of business. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian owned and has been GMP certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular on this show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you? Thanks for having me back again. It's great. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about diabetes and blood sugar. So where do you want to start? Let's start with a misconception about diabetes. Okay, I want to differentiate. There's two types of diabetes that we normally talk about, which is type 1 and type 2. Mm-hmm. Okay. Type 1 is usually the type that, of diabetes that people are born with. It could be because your pancreas is not pumping out enough insulin. That's the classic type 1. Type 2 is, a, is the one that you get as you get older. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I'm glossing over a lot of that too because there's a whole bunch of different things that are going on. Okay, mm-hmm. but I want to focus more so on type two as opposed to type one. Okay, right? In type two diabetes, everybody thinks when they say the word diabetes, the first thing that comes into their mind is that my pancreas is not pumping out enough insulin. Okay, and sometimes that may not be true. Your pancreas might be pumping out as much insulin as as it used to before, but what's happening is the cells in your body are not picking up the cues about, about the insulin, meaning that it's not sensitive to the insulin that's been released. So, as an, and I'm just making an analogy here, okay? Yep. For example, you may have one insulin molecule interacting with one cell and it pulls in, say, five sugar molecules into the cell so it helps get the sugar out of the blood. That may be normal. But all of a sudden, you have the same number of insulin molecules, but instead of five sugar molecules pulling out of the blood, it's pulling one. And so your blood sugar levels stay high. All right, That's an example of what I call a insensitivity of the cells. And that's a classic also is found in type 2. 
type 2 diabetes. So you have those those type of diabetes. Then you have the diabetes, again, because your liver is pumping out way too much sugars. For whatever reason, the sugar production in the liver, right, is not normal. And you can see that, for example, you know, we know that the liver produces sugars and releases it, okay? And how we know that is, for example, at night. Some people will say, I ate nothing. For people who measure their blood sugars, they say, I went to bed, my blood sugars were normal when I went to bed. When I woke up in the morning, my blood sugars were very high. Why is that happening? Well, what happens is the liver releases sugar into the bloodstream. The reason it does that, it, it's a, it's like a, it acts like a reservoir. And basically, whenever your blood sugars are low, the liver releases it. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes the, that control mechanism is also wonky. Right. We don't know why. I mean, there's a lot of research and so on going on in that area too, right? Yeah. But that's one of the things. Now, from a natural product point of view, for, right, from a holistic point of view, right, one of the things, again, I would say is that we have to look after our liver, support our liver. The liver, as I always say, the liver does a lot of other things besides just detoxifying. Okay. One of the other things that the liver does is that it manufactures cholesterol. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that's a little bit different from what we're talking about. But again, cholesterol levels, the reason people get high cholesterol levels is not because we're consuming too much cholesterol. It's because the manufacturing of cholesterol goes off the rails, and that results in high cholesterol levels. The magic word is why we don't really know. Right? It's one of those things when we get older. It's like, why do we get older? We know it happens, right. but nobody has a definitive answer. And I, I'm sorry I'm digressing on some of these things. Right? No, but it's all part of one system, right? Right. Like, but this shows the interconnectedness of everything that we experience as we grow older. Right. right? So, you know, so one of the things that we have to do is to try and support some of these organ systems that we have, especially the liver. Right, so that's one one of the things that we should be doing, definitely. Right? So when you're saying supporting the liver, you're saying make it easier for the liver to do its job, and then it, you know it's less likely that it will go off yeah, the rails. So, yeah, you take more herbs and supplements, which basically act as antioxidant. I call it antioxidant support for the liver. Okay. Okay. There are certain herbs that we know when you take it, right? It protects the liver from oxidative damage. Right. right. One of them that everybody talks about all the time, and there's many studies that have shown this, is the effect of, of milk thistle. And again, I go yeah. back to milk thistle just because everybody knows about it. And it's been around for a long time, and lots of research have been done. Um, when, when people get mushroom poisoning in Europe, in Germany, for example, there is really no drug that they could have used. So what they do now, they gave people an IV of milk thistle extract. And what they find is that the amount of damage in the liver is a lot less than if you never did anything with it. So we do know that the, liver, the things that milk thistle are protected from antioxidative damage. And there's a whole bunch of other herbs that, that do that too. So in addition to supporting your liver with something like milk thistle, is it safe? To do a cleanse if, if you have yeah. blood cl- glucose issues? It's very, very safe, right? If you're going to ask me if I start taking milk thistle, do I see my blood sugar being back under control overnight? The, probably the answer, I, or the answer is definitely not overnight, no, right. yeah. but it's part of your routine. 
Okay. Right? Yep. You do it on a regular basis, and uh, what you're trying to do is to try to con- get the liver to try to get back in control. Okay. Right? Now, there's not a magic bullet. There's no magic bullets, right? Mm-hmm. What I also su- suggest to people to do is to support your, your organ systems by taking your B vitamins. Because B vitamins are very important in the production of things like ATP. ATP is the energy system that drives your your body. And that's important because whatever biochemistry happens in the body, ATP is the thing that drives it. For example, something uh, uh, like manufacturing of insulin is driven by an ATP process. You need that energy to to manufacture it, right? Mm -hmm. Taking a walk down the street is driven by ATP, right? That's on the macro scale. But on the micro scale, right, when you, uh, for example, reabsorption of water through the kidneys, it's an ATP-driven process, right? Mm -hmm. Now, so, but B vitamins are very important in the manufacture of ATP. So, again, you know, but I don't want people to walk away from this thinking that all I have to do is to take B vitamins, right? right? Because the B vitamins is just a cog in the wheel, Right. If you, you need your trace minerals also, things like selenium, zinc, copper, all of those things are the cogs in the wheel. So you can think of it, if you have a, a whole bunch of cogs and then one cog is missing, right? whether it's your ATP cog, whether it's your B vitamin cog, whether it's your trace mineral cog, whether it's your fat content cog, once one of those are gone, the whole thing grinds to a halt. Right. Fortunately for us, the body has a lot of what I call redundant systems that can pick up the slack. Right. Yep. But how efficient it is, right? I don't know. Right. And I imagine the efficiencies do not go up as you get older. That's right. And as we get older, everything, um, the efficiency and everything drops on top of that. I'm curious because I, I have we haven't discussed it before. What is it that the minerals do in order to support blood sugar levels? Well, one of the things that the minerals do, what I call cofactors in the way enzymes work. Okay. Right? And again, if you don't have the minerals, the enzymes don't fold properly. If the enzymes don't fold properly, it's not going to do its job. Right? And that's why you need some of these minerals. So sometimes one mineral could substitute for another mineral. Right? Now, that's on a microscopic biochemical level. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, but... You know, there's a whole bunch of other things that people talk about. Things, something as there's a supplement out there called alpha lipoic acid. Now, what alpha lipoic acid the studies have shown is that it, it sensitizes the cells to blood sugar levels. Meaning that if your cells are not sensitive to the insulin, it makes them more sensitive to the insulin. So it makes your insulin work a little bit better. Okay, mm-hmm. but it's like anything else. If you take too much you can cause your, your blood sugar level to drop too quickly, right? And, you know, it's all about balance, right? And if your blood sugar levels drop too quickly, you're looking, you're looking to try and bring, bring it back up with, more, with food or with sugars or something like that. So it's a, it's a careful balance you have to look at with, with blood sugar levels. You've mentioned vitamins and you've mentioned minerals. What about proteins? Can they help with blood glucose levels? It does because one of the things that proteins do is that when you take the, when you take the, it seems to balance your blood sugars. It makes by that I mean it doesn't increase or decrease per se. It makes your blood sugar level seems to be more stable. Okay, so you're not getting the highs and the lows. And that's a good thing. So for people who are trying to lose weight, okay, 
proteins are a good thing because if you take the proteins, it keeps your blood sugars level. If it keeps your blood sugars level, you're not looking for more food. If you're not looking for more food, you basically go about your day burning some calories without feeling the need to rush out and, and consume more calories. Does it matter what kind of proteins or, or how we take them? Like, are you talking about proteins that we get through our diet? Or are you talking about protein supplements? I like the diet approach first and foremost, right? Yep. But it's like depending on the people. As you get older, let's say you're in your 70s. Well, let's face it. Who at 70 is going to sit down and chow down on a 10-ounce steak? Right. I, that, that's what I'm going to aspire to in my yeah, 70s because I like my steak. But I, <laughs> but I hear what you're saying. Go you on. Know, I, sometimes I say the body's willing, but the flesh is weak. Yeah. Okay? yeah. Uh, but it's very difficult because with the steak, you've got to digest it out. Of course. So that, that's why a lot of people, as they get older, they take the prepared protein drinks. Right. Right. Yep. I won't mention those, but brand name wise, but sometimes, in my opinion, the protein that they use to make those are what I call inferior proteins. I much prefer the people to use things protein that comes from whey, right? Mm-hmm. Whey protein or milk protein, those are the best ones. And the reason I say they're the best is because they are easily digestible. Digestion is important. Of course. If you can digest it, it all right, it, it gets absorbed a lot easier. Okay. Right. Now, I know that there are some new diabetic drugs out there, some which are approved, I think, as late as last year, mm-hmm. that helps with weight loss. Are there any concerns about taking natural products or supplements in conjunction with those most, drugs that people are looking at? Most of these drugs, I mean, in all fairness to you, I'll say this. If your blood sugar levels are not under control, right, and you, you have extremely high blood sugars, you should go on medication. Of course. Okay? Yep. I'm the very person to advocate going on medication if your blood sugars are not under control. And most people... If you're taking these, want to go the supplementation route, you're probably on the borderline, and that, that's where it works. But supplementation also works with some of the medications in that it makes them more effective. Okay? Oh, okay. So, you're... Right? so, for example, I talk about alpha-lipoic acid. Right. Right. That will help control your blood sugar levels because if it, makes, if it sensitizes the body to the insulin that's being produced, whatever is out there just makes the, your insulin work a little bit better. Okay, so that's mm-hmm. one thing. Some of the herbs that people use out there also will help help the, the blood sugar levels to be controlled better, right? Because you know as well as I do, there's some people, for example, they need to take an uh, insulin shot on a daily basis. Right. But with an insulin shot, the insulin levels are very, very high, very, very low, right? It mm-hmm. goes, it, it, it yo-yos, and at any, any given time, it might be too high or it might be too low. All right. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do with some of these supplements is to try and balance it out. Okay. And are, are, are there, should there be any concerns about contraindications? The only one indication I would be really worried about is like sometimes you just took your shot of insulin and you, and you took your, some like alpha lipoic acid at the same time. What happens? All of a sudden, your blood sugars plummet. Those are some of the things you've got to be careful about. Okay. Right. And I know, and we only have time for one more question. I know that you advocate for, for lifestyle decisions, and I think it's particularly relevant if people are dealing with their blood sugar levels. Would you agree? I agree. Uh, you know what? What people, and i sorry I didn't touch upon this, is the exercise routine, because yeah. there's studies that show that there's something called high-intensity training. Yeah. And basically what they found was that if you exercise like a madman, when I say that, I mean for about two or three minutes, what they find 
is that your body utilizes the sugars a lot better. And this is something that it doesn't stop when you stop exercising, meaning that yep. it carries on. Yep. Right? So you get much better control of blood sugar. But again, you have to get into that routine of exercise. Yeah. And you really, if you've never done high intensity in- interval training, you really... Make sure your heart is good. Yeah. You need you need somebody to guide you through it because it, sure. it isn't quite as simple as just starting it up yourself. Yeah. But in all fairness, a good exercise routine, you don't need to go high intensity, but if you do exercise, you move around and so on. That does a lot in helping control blood sugars. Totally agree. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on today. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice, The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Looking for natural supplements to boost your immunity? New Roots Herbal can help. Whether it's rebuilding your immunity after an illness or simply maintaining a healthy immune system year-round, New Roots Herbal is here for you with a wide range of proven formulations. Discover Protector, Astralgus 8000, UltraZinc, and their best-selling Vitamin C8. If you're looking to build your immunity from within, look no further than New Roots Herbal, available exclusively at your local health food store. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Stacey Irvine is the co-founder of Totem Life Science. The philosophy and identity of Totem have been greatly influenced by Stacey's love of athletics and her passionate belief that everyone will benefit from a healthy, active lifestyle in their own unique way. Through her work as a chiropractor and strength and conditioning specialist, Dr. Irvine's clientele ranges from beginners just starting out on an exercise program to elite and professional athletes looking for advanced rehabilitation and training program strategies. She's made several appearances as a fitness expert on City Line, Canada AM, Global Television Network, City TV, WTN, and is frequently quoted as a fitness expert in Chatelaine, Glow Magazine, More Magazine, Zoomer, and the Toronto Star, and she's a regular on this show. Welcome back. Great to be here. So, you and I were talking about topics for the show, and we're going to talk about gardening injuries. And <laughs> and before before everybody goes crazy here, we're not talking about running around with shears and stabbing ourselves. <laughs> and this is not a riff on Spinal Tap. There will be no discussions about you know bizarre gardening accidents that result in drummers passing. However, you can actually hurt yourself gardening, can't you? You definitely can. And I am so excited that we're talking about gardening. And you and I have covered, you know, many topics kind of when this whole pandemic started of like what the trends are. And guess what? Gardening is the trend of this spring. And it's actually becoming almost like a competitive sport because we don't have a lot of our other competitive sports. So I think it's amazing that we're talking about it because I'm actually kind of worried about the gardening injuries that are going to come. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, if, if you're not used to the movement, you can actually hurt yourself. Like, I, and I'm a gardener, right? Like, I'm, I'm in the backyard all the time. I think we probably discussed all the food that I grow and the fact that, like, I completely did all the landscaping and everything like that. Like, 
it's a lot of work. So you've experienced it and you know how much work it can be. Now, the benefits for our health are massive. Yeah. So first of all, you mentioned the food. The food that we get from our garden tastes better, it has less chemicals, and that encourages you to eat healthier. You get way more excited about eating tomatoes out of your garden than tomatoes that you buy at the grocery store. They taste completely different, they smell different, it's a whole different experience. And then the activity that we get is amazing because we are outside, we're active, we're burning more calories, and believe it or not, gardening has been proven through research that it helps us alleviate stress. And goodness knows we are all dealing with a lot of extra stress these days. So I think that gardening is one of the best ways that we could try to, you know, deal with that stress. As you said, the, the positions, the positions are different than what we're used to, and that is kind of what leads to some of the injuries with gardening. Yeah. Yeah. You're not sitting in a chair, right? I mean, that's the difference, right? Like, you you know, but your body may be contorting to do some things that it's not used to. Well, and you know what else I think happens a lot is we don't really think that gardening is real activity and it is. Of course it is. And so you kind of go into it like, oh, I'll do this in my spare time or I've got five minutes here. So one of the biggest pieces of advice that I would like to give people is that if you're going to go out and spend the morning doing your planting or whatever you're doing, do a warm-up. Yeah. Go for a walk. Just get your body temperature warmed up. That's going to get you, you know, kind of halfway there to preventing some of these injuries. Because if you start these weird positions and your body's very cold, we know that that makes you a lot more susceptible to injury. The next thing that you need to do is you need to structure your gardening day so that you're changing positions. You're not just doing the same thing over and over and over again and staying in the same position. So you might want to go plant for a while And then you might want to stand up and rake for a while just so that while you're doing it, you're changing positions and you're taking some breaks from those repetitive movements. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the gardening that people are typically going to be doing is going to be sort of getting down low, right? Like, you know, you're going to be, if you have trees, maybe you're doing pruning, but for the most part, what you're doing is you're on the ground and you're digging up weeds or you're moving plants around or you're planting or you're preparing garden beds or fixing sod or whatever it is you're doing. You're probably sitting or on your knees or stooping yes. over. And that's really where the injuries can come. At least that's, that's where my experience is, at least. You are 100% correct on that. And the most common injuries we see with gardening, the worst one that I see is that people have a full kind of lower back spasm. And we know that those cause a lot of discomfort and a lot of disability. And that is from that bending over position, bending over and twisting and then staying in that position for too long so that your body just can't handle that position and all of a sudden it puts you into a back spasm. So that's one of the most common. And then we also can see some issues with knees, and that's from the kneeling. So you want to make sure that you've got, there's great piece of equipment out there. There's like kneeling pads and they've got little arm holders so you can get up and down easily. We want to make sure if we're doing a lot of kneeling with our gardening, we want to make sure we have the proper equipment to do that. And then the other thing I see commonly is kind of wrist and elbow injuries, and that's from the repetitive digging and, you know, the twisting when we're doing weeding and shoveling and things like that. And believe it or not, there is such cool stuff out there now. Like, there's all this ergonomically designed gardening equipment, and I really think if 
if you're going to become an avid or a competitive gardener this spring, I think it's really smart to invest in some of those good pieces of equipment. We've got to be careful about talking about competitive gardening when you're talking <laughs> with me, right? Because I'm competitive at everything. Gardening was one of those things where like, I actually thought it was safe for me to do it, right? Like I wouldn't get embroiled in any sort of competition in any way. And here you are stoking my imagination of competitive gardening. All right. Yeah, there, there are some, ama- like, like anything, right? Like when we were talking about running or skiing or all those other activities and we were stressing how important it was to get the proper equipment and to wear the proper clothing, it's the same deal with gardening, right? Like don't just throw on stuff that you don't mind getting dirty. Like make sure you're protecting yourself from the sun. Make sure you're not dehydrating. Wear a hat. I'm a bald man. I can't garden for five hours and not get a sunburn on my head. So I got to protect myself, you know. It's it's super important. And you know, you make such a good point with that is when you look at the old equipment, like we have this old shovel in our yep. garage that, you know, we drag yep. out if, if there's something that we have to do and we, we couldn't find the good shovel. And I swear to you that that shovel weighs in itself about 30 pounds and the good shovel maybe weighs between five and 10 pounds. So if you think about doing it for a couple hours and you're using equipment that is terrible, you are going to feel the effects of that bad equipment. So I could not agree more. You want to invest in some good stuff. And again, I'm worried this year. I'm thinking like you got to go out and get the stuff right now. It's going to be like bikes. Yeah, no, it's going to be the same situation as people trying to get skis (laughs) and bikes. Mm -hmm. I would suggest to anybody, make sure like getting like simple equipment, like a small spade, like a hand mm-hmm. spade, you want to be able to get a shovel. Like there's different shovels for different purposes. Obviously you're not using a snow shovel, but like there are digging shovels and then yeah. there are scooping shovels and they're not the same. And you know, if you have any sort of size to your garden, consider getting a wheelbarrow because, I agree. because lugging stuff around is, is how you can really injure yourself and a wheel you can definitely injure yourself. Yeah. I, I have this amazing wheelbarrow. I think I spent maybe $30, $40 on it, but it's lightweight. I can transport anything everywhere. It's got these nice thick tires on it so I can get through the muck. And it's it's a lifesaver. It's such an important thing. And if you don't have the wheelbarrow, you got to re- be prepared to take many trips. Like, don't right. try to carry things that are too heavy. Use your proper lifting techniques. You don't want to be rushing through the gardening because that's when you can make a mistake and that's when you can get injured. Another really important thing about gardening is that it's a really fun community event. And maybe if you don't have access to a garden right now or, you know, you have a balcony or something like that, check with your community because this is just exploding this year, these community gardens. And I just think it's such a wonderful thing that if you don't have access to a garden, you could look into joining these wonderful community groups that are doing these gardens. And I really think that that is a very good thing for stress relief. We're dying to spend some time with other people. You can do it outside so it's safe, so you can be with other people. So I think that's a really fun way to look at gardening as well. I agree. And you know what? It's really nice. You know, sometimes you'll grow something and it'll take off in your garden. Like last year, we had a bumper crop of mustard greens, (laughs) as an example. And And you can only eat so many mustard greens. So, you know, just getting stuff together, a small care package for your neighbor who maybe can't get out is nice. You know, like everybody appreciates it and it's going to go bad if you don't eat it. Right. Cause it's organics and nothing lasts forever. So I would say it's, it's a great way to connect with your neighbors that maybe you haven't spoken with in a while, bring them berries, bring them tomatoes. It's nice. I love it. My neighbor brings me rhubarb all the time and I love rhubarb. 
and nothing makes me happier than seeing a fresh of rhubarb on my doorstep. I could not agree more. I think it's a really wonderful way to connect with people in your neighborhood. And it does make you feel good to do something good like that. And it's something that you've grown from scratch, which is really amazing. We have time for one last question, and that is, would you recommend stretching before or after? Like, is there anything we can do to help with the twisting and the kneeling and the awkward positions? That's a great question. So what I would do is we generally say when you're going to be active, you want to engage first. And then you want to stretch after. So engaging for gardening would be doing a few things like do a couple planks or do, you know, just like some kind of donkey kicks to the back just to get your glutes working. And again, that kind of comes with the warm up, do a few step ups, run up and down a few stairs, just so that you've got your muscles kind of woken up and activated. And then stretching, when you're finished gardening, stretching is crucially important. And you might just want to come inside, maybe you're taking a break, you know, you're watching something on Netflix or something, just sit down and do a few really good stretches. And then you're going to be very grateful that you did that the next day because you're not going to have as much muscle soreness from the gardening. Great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. What do you want to talk about next month? It's my pleasure. Let's talk about maybe workouts for different age groups. Fantastic. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss micro changes for your health on The Tonic. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Center is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8,300-square-foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy, and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage, and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory, plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments, and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. NutriPure is a Canadian company which formulates and manufactures natural health supplements over and above industry standards. Since 1989, it's set itself apart by providing a line of products that not only reduce symptoms, but target the causes of specific health conditions. In addition to its offering of superior products, NutriPure has always been there for its clientele with around-the-clock customer service led by health professionals. Reach out to their experts on social media and ask about their cleansing programs. Fluxobile and Hepatol for liver health, Intestfibe for colon, and Ingest for kidney. NutriPure, your health is their commitment. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Dr. Emily Lipinski graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto and is a member of the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors. While in the academic world, Emily became fascinated with the potential applications of naturopathic medicine in health and wellness. She strongly believes in addressing the root cause of a medical issue and using natural therapies either alone or in conjunction with conventional Western medicine. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. We've got an interesting little topic today. No pun intended. We're going to talk about micro changes. Yes. So what is a micro change? It really is as it sounds. It's very small, easy fixes that can improve your life in just up to 15 minutes a day. So little things that you're doing in a short period of time, but that you do consistently to make a big impact in your life. 
So there's a concept in Japan called Kaizen, which talks about like how you're in a constant state of improvement, but it's not major tasks. It's, it's small incremental changes, which collectively over time create large change. Does this sort of fit into that framework? Absolutely. And also the same kind of uh, sentiment in that micro changes can be sustainable forever. So, you know, you're committing to something because you're only doing it for a little bit every day. It's something that you can do for a long, long time. Okay, so we're we're talking about it abstractly, but can you just give me one example of what a micro change might look like, just so our listeners understand where we're we're going with this? So I would say, you know, speaking about a patient on top of my my head the other day that was having six cups of coffee a day. And we know six cups of coffee, for most people, that's too much, but they love coffee. So instead of saying stop coffee completely or even go down to two cups, let's just take away one cup a day and replace it with decaf. It's like, oh, that's easy. That's pretty simple. So it's something that, you know, is going to make a positive effect in your life, but it's not going to be a big difficulty to achieve it. Okay. So let's talk about it in practicality. There's a concept of a five-minute action within this concept of microchanges. What is a five-minute action? So it's the same five-minute action that you can do every day. It could be something different every day, but it's really something that you've decided that works best for you and your life goals. So another example would be someone that wants to improve breathing, let's say, like deep breathing, just simply deep breathing for five minutes every day. You Mm -hmm. could even start with three minutes every day. That is going to make, over time, a huge improvement from what the research studies say in overall well-being and calming the mind. Okay. So really, it could be anything, right? Like anything you can do in a short period of time. It could be maybe getting up from your desk and walking around or doing a few push-ups or something along those lines. Yeah? Oh, absolutely. It could even be a lot of people talk about how they want to get to bed earlier. And a five-minute change is instead of if you go to bed at midnight every night, try going to bed even at 11.55 or 11.50. And you slowly over time... Even if you can turn that back by five minutes every month, it's going to take you a while. But over a period of time, next year, you're going to be going to bed earlier than you're going to bed now. And you won't have even noticed a difference because it's so slow. You know, I think this is the type of thing that some people may be doing intuitively without actually attaching a name to it. Like yes. for me, when I make a decision, like there, there comes a point, usually it's around February or March, which is like the nadir for my weight you know, like I'm usually my heaviest around this time of year. So I just say, okay, I got to start making some changes. And I think when people make those types of decisions, it's, it's hard to sort of go cold turkey. Although sometimes I end up doing that. So for me, it's emotional eating at night. So instead of saying yeah. I'm not going to eat after dinner, which is really, really, really hard for me, I start counting backwards, right? Like I'll say, okay, so I'm not going to eat, and it sounds ridiculous, I'm not going to eat anything after 11, right? Or I'm not going to eat yeah. anything after quarter to 11, 10 o'clock, and then pretty soon, after a couple of weeks, I'm getting to the point where I'm not eating after dinner, which for me is the victory. But if I if I had started with just cutting everything out after dinner, it's a slippery slope, and I would be down that slope in about three days. I think that's what we're See, talking you're, about. You're, yeah, you're totally doing it. I think some people don't haven't realized that it's it is that easy, or maybe haven't even thought of it like that. I know speaking to a lot of patients, they maybe haven't thought of that thought process, or they think you know sometimes saying 
this is where I want to be, seeing that goal in their mind and seeing that it's such a big change to get there, it becomes overwhelming and they say, well, I just can't do it. So then if we break it down into just exactly like you did, you know, one micro change or a series of little micro changes, yeah, it might take a long time, but you can get there and it's not as stressful or overwhelming. Well, you know, it's, it's the old saying, and, you know, we, we say it repeatedly here, whatever it is you're trying to fix, you know, whatever problem it is, whether it's sleep, weight loss, exercise, whatever it is, you got to the point where you got not overnight. You allowed things to, to go a certain way for a long period of time. So your expectations in fixing it should be that it'll probably take just as long to fix it. Right. You know, like if you if yeah. if you're a couch potato and, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you, you know, you were more active I and mean, maybe it shouldn't take you 10 years, but you shouldn't expect to be active again overnight. Right. That's pretty much what we're saying. That's right. And I I would say, you know, I'm glad you mentioned going cold turkey because I think there are some people that their personality may do better with just going cold turkey. Like, I mean, I'm talking about like someone that wants to quit smoking. You could do the same thing with micro change, right? Like you, if you're having five cigarettes a day, you could start with just having four and a half a day or some people that will work going slowly down into three, two. And like you say, people that start smoking probably don't start with five cigarettes a day. They started with one and they moved themselves up to five. We're kind of unraveling that and going backwards. Yep. But I would say that there's some people that if you're listening to this and saying, oh, I don't know, it might be easier for me to go cold turkey. You could try that way too, because that it, cold turkey does work for some people. Right. In some circumstances, it works for me, and some it doesn't. What are some of the ideas that are attached to micro changes that that people it might might be beneficial for people listening? So, really, kind of you you can think of it big picture. So, what's the outcome that I want? Mm-hmm. You could start with that. Then this month I will do, or this week I will do, or today I will. And some of the things that you could think about in when your ideas for actions to achieve these is to book a specific time or place to get whatever you need to get done. So if you're trying, if you're trying to get a workout done, you kind of premeditate, okay, five minutes every day, my workout is going to be in this space using this equipment. And that's what I'm going to commit to. Or it could be starting a gratitude journal. And again, you want to make sure that you get yourself organized so you get your journal ready, you you have premeditated. So part of, like anything in life, planning for success. So you want to plan out how it's going to be, what it's going to look like. So not only are you looking forward to your goal, but you're really seeing yourself doing that five-minute action every single day, repeatedly. Okay. And do you find that there are particular times of day that are more beneficial for this? Like, I guess you're kind of fitting it in between all the other things that you're obliged to do, like work, eat, spend time with your family, all the, all the rest of the stuff, right? Yeah, I think, you know, for myself, it's the morning. That's where I'm definitely most focused and I achieve the most. But then you have to think of big picture. In my, in my practice, I work with a lot of patients that do night shifts or do shift work. So mm. for them, the morning, it's not, we speak about their life more in 24-hour cycles instead of morning and evening. So it's really just making sure that you look at your schedule in your life and in between, you know, your work and kids and meals and obligations that you're kind of 
planning out when that five-minute action is going to be every day or within a 24-hour cycle every day. Yeah, I think I'm most optimistic in the morning. You know, like you wake up and you think, okay, the day's ahead of me. Before the grind wears you down and you have no more will to make those changes, you might want to get to it early. The funny thing is I, I choose to work out at the worst possible time, which is before dinner, right? You know that, that time of day, yes. like late afternoon, where you just feel logy and it's kind of like, oh, yes. if I stop my work right now, I will get nothing else accomplished the rest of the day. That's when I work out. Because I feel like if I can do it then, I could do it any time, which is perverse. I know. And is the workout good? Yeah. Is it like yeah, a no, good Na- workout? Na- okay. Naomi, Naomi's horrified. She said, like, why Why do you do this? Why don't you <laughs> like? Why don't you do it in the morning like a normal person? And I said, because anybody could do it in the morning. I'm doing it in the late afternoon. There you go. Right? <laughs> there you go. And, you know, the morning, too, um, a lot of people that suffer from anxiety sometimes wake up feeling anxious. Yeah. And that might be a time where people might shy away and think, oh, I'm not going to book it for that time or book myself in for that time because I am feeling anxious. It might be good to try during that time because yeah. sometimes you can transform that anxious energy, it, whether you're working out or instead of, you know, lying in bed, like having your, that rumination in your head going, taking out your gratitude journal and doing your gratitude. It can it can actually shift the whole paradigm for the rest of the day. Okay. For those who are interested in the concept of micro changes, what resources would you recommend to them? So there's actually a Toronto author and uh, psychologist known as Greg Wells, and he wrote the book, The Ripple Effect. Mm-hmm. And that's one book that people might want to check out. And one of the quotes that he always says is in that book is that when you're just walking 15 minutes a day, Uh, The research shows that it can reduce the risk of breast and colon cancer somewhere between 24 to 40 percent. So again, 15 minutes a day, but over time, making these huge changes. The other book that just came out this year is by Joanne Milan, and she wrote Change Your Life in Five Minutes a Day. And the same same sort of concepts that we talked about here. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure that we have links on the website. So if people want to check out those books, they can. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Heather Lillico is a registered holistic nutritionist and yoga and meditation instructor. She focuses on mental health, having been overwhelmed by anxiety and depression for most of her adult life. 
By incorporating nutrients to nourish your mind and mindfulness techniques to slow you down, Heather knows it's possible to get off the hamster wheel of looping thoughts and enjoy the magic of a clear mind. For more information, you can visit heatherlilico.com or follow her on Instagram at heather underscore L-I-L. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. Thanks for having me back. Always good to have you on the show. Today, you know, every so often we do this, you know, I can't say we've been broadcasting for eons, but, you know, every so often I like to revisit topics to make sure everybody's on the same page because there's so much disinformation out there. We're going to talk about organic foods because I think this is sort of a loaded topic. You with me? Yes. Agreed. I get asked about this topic all the time in almost every seminar I give, every corporation I'm working with. I always get asked about organic foods. So what makes food organic? Well, organic foods are regulated in Canada. So this means we do have some helpful guidelines on what makes a food organic. And you'll see on foods the Canada Organic logo. It's sort of like a a branding. And it's put on whole organic foods, but also packaged foods that have 95% organic ingredients or above. And so we have some rules about what is not allowed in the food production process with organic food. So you won't find any synthetic pesticides, food additives like nitrates, sulfites, uh, no GMOs, no added hormones or antibiotics unless there's a little bit of wiggle room if there's an emergency for the animal. And we are allowed things like compost, natural fertilizers like manure, amino acids, minerals, algae products, enzymes, and yeast. And with organic foods, it's really about the food production system. So the goal is to have a food system that is more sustainable and works with the environment. And we see a big emphasis on soil quality and longevity of farming practices. What sort of foods would you see with the organic label? Is it everything or is it just a narrowly focused cohort of foods? I think it's a bit broader these days. So you generally see it on things like fruits, vegetables, grains, nuts, meat products, eggs, dairy. But as well, we're seeing it more and more on packaged foods. So anything with 95% of the ingredients organic or above can be labeled as an organic packaged food. And here's where it gets confusing for consumers because there's a bit of a health halo, right, that comes along with something being organic. And so I've seen candies and processed foods with the organic label that people might think is is automatically going to be a healthier choice, but it might not be healthier than a conventional, you know, fruit or vegetable, real whole food. Right. So just because it's organic doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best healthy product for you, for example, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's not automatically healthier just because uh, it's organic. And maybe we can chat about, you know, are organic foods better? Because that's what I get asked all the time. Well, that's the $64,000 question. Can you answer it for us? I can sort of answer it because... Yes and no. Just like with everything in nutrition, there are some benefits, but there are some drawbacks too. So let's talk about nutrients and then we can talk about pesticides. Sure. Mm -hmm. So in general, there are no significant nutritional differences between organic and not in terms of vitamin and mineral content. But organic foods do have higher antioxidant content and specifically a group of antioxidants called polyphenols. And these have been linked with improving cardiovascular health and digestion. So that's a benefit. But I think with organic foods, it's more about what's not in the food that's important. So non-organic or conventional produce have been shown to have higher levels of certain toxic minerals. So we've seen two times the level of cadmium, which can be cancer-causing, higher levels of lead and mercury 
as well. And non-organic foods also have higher levels of pesticides. And I think this is probably the big one for people that in general, people following an organic diet, when we measure their urine for pesticide levels, we see that it's reduced. So in general, if you're having organic foods, you're going to have fewer pesticides. Now, what that means long-term for health, I don't think we fully know yet, but they, you, you are going to reduce your exposure if that's something that you're concerned about. Right. Okay. So there are obviously, you know, we've mentioned the good things about organic foods, but there are some drawbacks. I mean, off the top of my head, you are going to pay a premium for it. That's for sure. Yes, absolutely. I think for most people, the biggest barrier that I see is price and The price is higher for a few different reasons. I mean, the process of organic farming takes more effort. They're using manure instead of fertilizer, and this takes effort to create this, to store this, to spread it onto the field. It's longer to distribute. As well, they use techniques like crop rotation, which is working through growing different foods in a different cycle or sequence. And it's a common technique to help keep pests away and maintain the nutrients in the soil. But all of this takes longer, and that's often reflected in the price. So that can be a drawback. As well, organic foods generally have shorter shelf life, so not going to last as long. And usually they're smaller, you'll notice as well. So you might need more of it to put in a recipe or whatever you're using it for. And that could be a a drawback to and contribute to a higher price point. Yeah. And I think the optics of the organic foods, right? Like they're going to have more blemishes. They're going to be misshapen. They won't be perfectly formed. You know, like they look the way fruits and vegetables look. If you're going to grow them in your backyard, it ain't always as beautiful as everything looking uniform in your grocery aisle. So I think people not used to that might be put off by it. I don't necessarily think it's a negative, but you know, when you eat, you eat with your eyes first, I guess. Yeah, that's something to consider. I mean, if I'm growing, you know, radishes in my my garden as I have in the summer, they come out like knobby, small little things. And I'm like, all this work for a tiny little piece. I mean, it certainly makes me appreciate the food production system and how big and round things come out there. So uh, circling back a bit, you know, addressing the issue of cost, because, you know, everybody only has so much money to spend on the food that they're going to eat. Is there a way to sort of direct our attention to which foods are more relevant to buy organic if you're so inclined? Absolutely, yeah. So considering it can be expensive and there's not a ton of difference nutritionally, you may not want to buy every food organic. And so I suggest that people focus their efforts on avoiding what's called the dirty dozen. And so this is a list that's created by the Environmental Working Group. They're an activist group in the U.S. And they form this list by taking different fruits and veggies. They measure, I think, about 46 of them. And they prepare them as you would at home. So they rinse the food or they peel it if it requires. And then they measure the level of pesticides in the food. And so they've created a ranking of the 12 worst that they've named the dirty dozen. I'm going to share them with you now. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. We have strawberries spinach, kale, nectarines, apples, grapes, cherries, peaches, pears, bell and hot peppers, celery, and tomatoes. So if I wanted to reduce my pesticide exposure but couldn't buy everything organic, I would focus on that list of the Dirty Dozen. And of course, it's available online if you Google Dirty Dozen or Environmental Working Group, you'll come across it. See, there's a couple things on the, that I thought were on the list that you did not mention I always thought broccoli was on that list because of the surface area with all the florets. And I thought there were two others, which were milk and meat. But you can correct me, I guess. Yeah, so this is the latest one. I believe it just came out for 2021. Ah. So perhaps things have changed. But it's interesting that you mentioned broccoli because that actually appears on another list 
which we call the the clean 15, which is sort of the opposite end of the the spectrum. Okay, so let's talk about the clean 15. Yeah, so certain foods that have protection from pesticides um, can show up on the clean 15. So again, it comes from this environmental working group, and they've identified that certain foods have lower levels of pesticides uh, consistently. Now, it's usually anything with a peel is sort of protected because the pesticide can't get into the actual food as much. And let me just mention as well that I really dislike using the word clean when it comes to food. The term clean eating, I think, is is very harmful. But in this case, when we're talking about pesticides, I think perhaps it's warranted. So some of the things we see on the list of clean 15 are things like avocados, sweet corn, onions, pineapples, broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, melon, um, any of those, I would say would be okay to purchase non-organic in terms of the pesticide level if you were really looking to save costs, then you could focus on buying these ones produced in a conventional way. Okay. Any other advice for eating organic on a budget? Because clearly, you know, if we can avoid buying organics, we're going to save a little bit of money, you know, with the Clean 15. What other suggestions do you have? Yeah, so looking at that list is is a start, but also one that people might not consider is to eat less meat in general. So organic meat is very expensive, but I would say it's a high priority to buy organic because of all of the antibiotics and the hormones used in a typical conventional meat. So when you're purchasing plant-based proteins, so for example, your lentils, your beans, your chickpeas, these can be very cost-effective and easy enough to prepare as well. So that's one way to save cost as well. Buy in bulk, you can freeze extra. So buying things that are in season often is cheaper and then just store the extra for later. And you can also check the frozen aisle as well because while these might not be things that are in season, these are foods that are picked at their peak freshness and then frozen right away. So most of the nutrients actually stay intact. And I find the difference between frozen organic and non-organic not to be as severe of a jump. You mean mm-hmm. in terms of price, you mean? In terms of price, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and you could consider as well joining a food co-op to save a bit there or doing like an organic food delivery service. There's always promo codes for things like Mama Organics. And I think there's a real movement, too, to take back a lot of power with our our food production system. So we're seeing a big movement of people growing food themselves, whether it's, you know, maybe a couple of herbs that you're going to grow inside, or maybe this summer as the weather starts to get warmer, bringing a a container garden outside or potting some things uh, to really experiment with, with your food production system. And so you can monitor how it's how it's all made. I'm a huge advocate of that. I mean, we have garden in, in our backyard and uh, every year we try something new, but you know, it's all organic unless you're spraying pesticides on it, which I do not. Uh, we have all kinds of berries and herbs and we have mustard greens and kale and hot peppers. So you, you really can supplement and see exactly where your food is coming from when you do that. Amazing. Yeah. And I think it makes you really appreciate the effort that goes into producing these foods. I think you're right. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Will you come back again next month? Absolutely, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Dr. Stacey Irvine, Dr. Emily Lipinski, and Heather Lillico. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. 
The March-April issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you know you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss boosting your immunity, asparagus, and World Health Day. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.